views and opinions expressed in this podcast are solely those of the individuals participating in the show. All persons described or mentioned in the podcast should be considered innocent until proven guilty in a court of law. This podcast contains subject matters such as violence and graphic descriptions along with adult language, which may not be suitable for all audiences. Listener discretion is advised. On April 4th, 1991, a woman calls her boyfriend from a payphone in Clinton, Missouri. She reports a suspicious man loitering around the... She report... God damn it. Let me do it all over again. All right. On April 4th, 1991, a woman phones her boyfriend from... God all right. In three, two. On April 4th, 1991, a woman phones her fiance from a payphone in Clinton, Missouri. She reports a suspicious man loitering around the area. Later, she's heard screaming for help. Her boyfriend. Fuck. Her fiancé jumps in the car to try to find her, and then a series of unfortunate events occurs. Unfortunately, she is never seen again. You're listening to the Mysterious Bruce Podcast, and tonight we bring you the case of Angela Hammond. Welcome. To a deep, dark, dank, moist basement. Somewhere in the bowels of Georgia. Well, Coach, what a difference a week makes. I mean, the weather was all springy and shit and <laughs> tried to drown us out. Only I seven know, days right? earlier, we were trying to be froze to death. Yeah, I don't know exactly what happened, but it screwed us all over, didn't it? Yes, it did. It was... Uh, um, Thought I was gonna have to build an ark. Yeah, me too. But unfortunately, I mean, fortunately, we didn't. But man, it's been windy as hell up here today. Yeah, it started the power out. Wow, it started getting a little windy about lunchtime down here. We talked like we're great distances. We're probably what forty five miles from each other. (laughs) (laughs) It's true. It's true. (laughs) But. Man, they don't tell. They don't call me fourteen take coach for nothing on that intro, bro. I know, man. We was all up God, to a I minute couldn't. and thirty seconds of screw ups. <laughs> I couldn't take. I couldn't take it. All right, before mush mouth. Uh, before we get too deep in the weeds, I needed to, and I should have done this a long time ago, and I apologize. But we have a lady who is uh, a fan who also has a podcast. Take a coffee break. She has a tiktok page and she updates that thing regularly so if you are into true crime which why would you not be if you're listening to us check her out take a coffee break she's on the instagram and the facebook as well she wanted us to bring attention to k elena turner missing out of harris county texas it is a newer case and we do have it on the list um 
But anybody in Texas that is aware of this case, please reach out to her or us and uh, let us know any details that you may have heard. We are getting some, I don't know how you put it, but I guess traction? requests also. Yeah, we are oh, getting we are traction. getting traction. Um, I'm seeing a lot of stuff about the Zodiac thing. I think you may have sponsored something. I did an ad. Advertisement. Yeah, man, we're getting a lot of looky-loos on it at least. Yeah. Um, the Madison County, Arkansas is back in the, the news, if it ever left the news. The big case out there right now is the Jason Lyrell case. And my recommendation this week, I'm going to go ahead and give it to you. Because X is going to give it to you. <laughs> I'm going to give it to you. I'm going to give it to you. <laughs> is our friend Catherine Townsend's. Terrible impression right, right there. That's, that's awful. <laughs> that's what you get on a Sunday night at 9 o'clock. <laughs> but our friend <laughs> uh, Catherine Townsend from Helen Gone did a two-part on our. I don't know what you call that case. Our. It's the case that just keeps coming back, and that is the case of Billie Jean Phillips. And Catherine drops a bombshell at the end of part two. I will not divulge the bombshell. You'll have to give her a listen. But what I wanted to say was all of the people from Madison County and those of you that have moved out of Madison County but still keep up with Billie Jean's case, please reach out to Catherine. She gives the way to contact her at the end of that episode, part two. But she has done some great work and looks like she's going to tie Billie Jean's case into a more recent case in Madison County. So I will not get it. Yes. So, you know, it's... check that out. You know, it makes me so mad sometimes when, like, you see, you hear people like her and how well they do on their podcast. It's like, man, we could do that. If only we could afford to do that. We if could, somebody, yeah, we could do that. If I heart would sponsor us like they do Catherine. That's what I'm saying. <laughs> if, I could, if we could do a podcast for a living, do you know how good we could do? Cause it's like the, my favorite part of the week is doing this. But man, like I told you earlier, I was, I was balls deep in work up until about an hour ago. It took me all day to finish my paperwork for, for school tomorrow. Yeah, and it's what people don't understand is like with both of us sitting behind a computer all day, banging out IEPs, and then I teach from home, so I'm seriously on Zoom all day long. It's hard to roll over to the other end of the desk, fire up the personal computer, and yeah. just start banging out notes. So. And sometimes, I mean, sometimes these IEPs, I mean, they're important. My job is awesome, except for all the paperwork. And the only reason why the paperwork is so bad is because all it takes is one angry parent or one angry advocate. And somebody's going to go through this paperwork with a fine tooth comb. And if they find a comma in the wrong place, they could sue you and win. Yeah. And then your teaching, your teaching career is over. It sucks. Yeah. At this point, OnlyFans is out of reach. I'm too old. Dude, if I had just the camera equipment, you know. <laughs> I've, I've thought about Feet Finder, you know. <laughs> Shaving toes. 
Stepping on pies. Right. I, if there was a, if, I'm pretty sure there's a market for ugly feet. I'm sure. I'm sure there is. And it's like straight out of Mindhunter where they give a, what's his name, a pair of those shoes and then get him to talk about it, about uh, one of the cases. So there's some sick, twisted yeah. people out there that would enjoy it. I'm oh, if I could just, if I can just pull the trigger on it, man, you never know. <laughs> we're sponsored. <laughs> we are magically, we're independently wealthy. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> so if you're out there and you have a secret interest in gargoyle feet, <laughs> message me discreetly and we'll set something up and I will hook you up with some just horrible, horrible pictures. Oh, that's perfect. Perfect. All right, ladies and gents, we will get up. We're going to try to swim our way out of that one. We are going to talk about Angela Hammond. Born Angela. Very famous case. Yep. Very famous case. One of the most famous cases from the Unsolved Mysteries. It's probably one of the most rerun, or that, that episode with her case in it is, I see it probably once a week. Well, listen, this is what I've been doing is like my girlfriend really thinks the dogs, you know, need company, which, you know, a lot of dogs have separation anxiety. So we always leave the TV on when we leave. And so what I've been doing lately is I've been turning it to Tubi and putting it on Unsolved Mysteries, hoping one of these two dogs will solve something. (laughs) (laughs) Write it out in their kibble. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, this case was on the other day when we walked in. I was like, hey, we're doing that. Like, next. Yeah. <laughs> so, born Angela Marie Hammond on February 9th, 1971, to parents Marsha and Chris Hammond. Angela was their firstborn, and the new parents were extremely excited to start their family. And they lived in Kansas City, Missouri, until Angela was about four. In 1975, they would move to Clinton, Missouri, where Marsha's parents lived. Now, this would provide Marsha and Chris with some much-needed help. And Clinton was a small rural town with a population of less than 9,000 people. And it has been described as a tight-knit town where you could walk down the street, see people you know, a real safe place to start a family, raise a family, and where... The old saying comes from, it's a place where they kept their doors and windows unlocked. You know, the quintessential true crime town. You know, you can do that in any town. I mean, yeah. if you got if you got the balls. Uh, yeah, you could just have those audio alarms so like when they open up, <laughs> everybody's seen those videos. When the, hey Alexa, play the boogaloo. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, like, Alexa, play intruder alert. And then it's like, the lights go off and yeah. the red light comes on. And it's like, let the bodies hit the floor. Let the bodies yeah. hit the floor. Hey, Alexa, dial 811. Do you mean 911? No, 811. I need to know where to bury a body. <laughs> so just after arriving in Clinton, Marsha and Chris welcomed their second child, a son named Lauren. Unfortunately, over time, Marsha and Chris's marriage began to crumble, and the two decided to go their separate ways. Marsha would move to a quiet little farm outside of Montrose, Missouri, and Montrose is about 20 miles outside of Clinton and away from Marsha's parents. 
Chris would decide to move back to Kansas City. Again, that's about 80 miles from Clinton. And Marsha, from what I could find, didn't remarry, but Chris would. Uh, despite their divorce and Chris's remarriage, Marsha and Chris remained amicable, and the two of them were both actively involved in raising Angela and Lauren. Now, the children grew up in a really stable environment where they were loved, taken care of, and had a great upbringing. Angela, who everyone called Angie, loved the town of Clinton. She had great friends. She was really well-liked. Most considered her one of the popular girls. She was known as a fun-loving, optimistic, vibrant girl who had a lot of energy and was always ready to have a good time. All of these attributes made Angie a person people loved to be around, and she loved to be around people. She enjoyed making people laugh. Her friends would always say that there was never a dull moment when she was around. Now, she was very successful in school and was excited for her future in Clinton. In November of 1990, when Angie was 19, she met a guy named Robert Schaefer. Robert was an 18-year-old high school athlete in Clinton, and just like most rural towns, high school football was king. And the town would turn out every Friday night to watch the game in Clinton. Rob was popular, smart, athletic, polite, and driven just like Angie. He had ambitions of joining the military after graduating high school. He and Angie fell in love, and in January of 1991, Angie became pregnant. Now, back then, uh, that was a uh-oh, oh shit moment, but... When she broke the news to Rob, she expected him to blow up, fly off the handle, leave her. But no, Rob was elated at the fact of becoming a father. He was excited to start a family with Angie and went out immediately and bought her a ring and proposed to her. So they would break the news to both their parents and each set of parents were super supportive of their decision to get married and raise the child. Soon, Angie and Rob would move in together and rented a mobile home. They started planning their lives together, and Rob still planned on joining the military in the summer of 1991, despite Angie being pregnant. Angie, however, was still taking college courses at Central Missouri State University, which is located in Warrensburg, Missouri, about 35 minutes north of Clinton. She also worked at the Union State Bank as a night processor. And I'm thinking night processor is probably a job that doesn't exist anymore. And so what night I could process, yeah, what I could probably, well, what I theorized was, and I'm sure some of our older listeners will correct me, but what I theorized is she was in charge of basically taking care of all the night deposits. So on the afternoon of Thursday, April 4th, Rob and Angie went to a family barbecue with Angie's family at her mom's house just after 9 p.m., they decided to head home because Rob had promised his mother that he would be at her house by 10 p.m. so he could babysit his little brother, Justin. He and Angie had plans to meet up again later that night, so Angie just dropped him off, gave him a goodbye kiss, and told him she would call him later to figure out when they would meet back up. Now, in the meantime, she went and met up with her best friend, Kyla, and they basically were just going to drive around downtown and hang out because there's nothing else to do in a small town. And guess what? There was nothing else to do 
during the 90s in my small town. We all drove the same thing, the little Dude, circuit. Same same in my town, bro. <laughs> Except, like, right about the time I graduated, maybe a little bit after, the kids started hanging out in the McDonald's parking lot. It's like, dude, what are you doing? Yeah, man, we would always ride around, and then we would always see other people, and then eventually we would pull over into a parking lot and get chased off by the cops. You know, them damn teenagers loitering at the Home Depot. But anyway, so Angie and Kyler, they just drove around to pass the time. Nothing out of the ordinary happened, and they were together for just over an hour, and Angie started getting pretty tired, and so they decided to call it a night. She dropped Kyla off at her house at 11.15 p.m., and after that, Angie drove to the nearest payphone because the trailer that her and Rob were living in did not have a landline. Now, the closest payphone to Kyla's house was at 210 South 2nd Street. This area was basically a large parking lot for the Super Barn, and I believe it's it was a grocery store at the time. Now it's a car dealership. But basically, it was a huge parking lot, and it had two phone booths that were located at the far end of the lot. These payphones were about seven blocks from Rob's mom's house, and that equates to about a two, three-minute drive. Now, Angie calls Rob, and the records show that she placed the call at 11.23 p.m. She tells Rob she was feeling tired, just want, was not feeling like hanging out later, and she just wanted to go home, get a bath, relax, and go to bed. So they are chit-chatting for about another 20 minutes, and halfway through the call, a pickup truck began circling the parking lot where Angie was using the payphone, and she started getting very uncomfortable. She explains to Rob what's going on, and he asked her what the truck looked like, what the driver looked like, etc. Now, she couldn't make out what the driver looked like, but she said that the vehicle was a green pickup truck, and within a couple of minutes, this truck pulls right up next to where Angie's car is at. And her car is parked right in front of the phone booth she's using. Now, a man gets out of the truck and goes up to the other phone booth right next to her. He's in there a couple of seconds and then goes back to his truck and gets out a flashlight and starts waving it around like he's looking for something. Now, this whole time, Angie is giving Rob the play-by-play of everything that's going on. She's extremely spooked by this man, and Rob tries to assure her that everything's going to be okay. He's like, you know, maybe he just needs to ask for directions. Maybe that's why he's been circling because he's lost, and he saw this phone booth, and he needs to come and call somebody to ask for directions. Do you think that's more of the sign of the times type thing? Because I'm pretty sure if this same situation happened right now, he'd have been dead. I'd be on. <laughs> I'd be on the phone. Been, I'd been on the phone telling her, "Get the hell out of there!" Yes. As soon as it started circling, all right, y'all, just get in the car and come straight here. Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah. I would say go in. Where was she? Was at the grocery store? Yeah, so, she was at the, the other end of the closed. Right. Right. It was so late at night. Okay. The grocery store was closed. Okay. I was about to say, go inside. Yeah. Talk to somebody. But yeah, if it was closed, that's different. But yeah, I'm I'm seriously thinking it's more of a sign of the times. I'm not faulting him at all for saying what he said, but just the world we live in now, we're like, man, go. (laughs) So out of there. Get out of Dodge. So Angie calls out to the guy because he was only in the phone booth for a couple of seconds. She starts thinking, well, maybe that phone in the booth that he used was not working. 
So when she calls out to the guy, she asks him if he needed to use the phone, and he says no. The man then starts looking into his truck again and starts kind of rummaging through it. Angie turns away from the man and begins to tell Rob how scared she is now. Rob asks her to describe the man, and she tells him that the guy is wearing overalls, has glasses on, wearing a dark cap, and he has a full beard and mustache. She also states that he looks filthy. And then, all of a sudden, Rob hears Angie let out this disturbing, blood-curdling scream, and the phone goes dead. Rob immediately throws the phone that he's using down, gets up, grabs a set of keys, runs out to a car at his mother's house, and remember, he's just two minutes, three minutes away, so he starts... Go ahead. Well, I was going to say the, according to Unsolved Mysteries, the last thing before the phone went dead was him hearing the man say, "I didn't need to use the phone anyway." Oh, I didn't. Which I is spooky. Didn't uh, didn't yeah. remember that. My bad. You're fine. It's okay. That's what I'm here for, bro. <laughs> we're here, we're here to get through this together. You can't do this all on your own. so rob starts driving to the phone booth and he's hauling ass and as he's heading that way he sees this green pickup coming towards him and he can make out that there's a female in the passenger seat and this female is really struggling with the driver now rob couldn't make out if it was angie but as he is passing the truck and the driver's windows meet He sees that that window is down, and this time, without a doubt, he sees Angie lean over the driver and yell out the open window and scream, Robbie. So he knew instantaneously that that was Angie in the truck. So he locks it down, bangs a hard Yui, and begins chasing this truck that has Angie in it. Now, Rob is gaining ground on the truck, and about two miles into the chase... The truck makes a sharp right turn at a high speed trying to lose Rob. Rob, being the great Midwestern boy that he is, is undeterred by such a maneuver, and he makes the sharp right turn as well. However, his car gives up the ghost and shits the bed right there in the middle of the road and comes to a complete stop. Here's what's so extremely tragic about this that I didn't even think of until we were researching this case is it's completely awful what she went through, of course, but think of that event from her perspective. She don't know the tranny crapped out. Yeah. She just thinks he stopped. She just sees him stop. Yeah, man. It's like, Oh, that is so like, that adds just a completely new layer of horribleness to this. Yeah. Unfortunately, all Rob can do is watch as the truck slowly fades out of sight. And this would be the last time anyone ever sees Angie alive. Well, Angie at all. In a valiant effort, Rob ditches the car, takes off running after the truck, but it was of no use. Uh, He just couldn't keep up. The truck was traveling so fast. He, it was a valiant effort. Now, come to find out later, the transmission on the car shit the bed, and so when he makes the turn, something in the transmission messes up, and he's just stranded right there in the middle of the road. So defeated, distraught, pit in his stomach, Rob starts walking back to town to alert authorities. On his way back, a car actually drives by, stops and asks him if they can help, and he's like, hell yeah, you can help. 
And so he asked the driver to take him immediately to the police station, which they do. And he walks into the police station at 12.05 a.m. and immediately tells police everything and gives them the full rundown of events. And he gives Angie's description of the truck as well as his own description of the truck. And between the two, basically, we come to find out that it was a green Ford F-150 with a white top. And it was a model between the years of 1960 to 1970. Now, he said there was partial damage to the front left fender, and on the rear window, there was a mural of a fish jumping out of the water. See, that's what's confounding about this case, is there's no fucking way somebody don't know that truck. Yep. You don't have a complete mural on the back windshield of a bass jumping out of a lake and not someone know that truck. So literally every, if this if the description is accurate, literally every human being in that man's life liked him enough to not say a fucking word. That's crazy. Do you know how many people in my that know me that would salivate at the opportunity, they would drool all over themselves bef- before they could get it out. Yeah, my list of haters would be burning the phone yeah. lines down. If I had a truck like that and they were like, we're suspicious of individuals driving this truck, I can think offhand of like 20 people that I would consider not even enemies, <laughs> just acquaintances that would be like, yeah, I want to see how this plays out. Like, <laughs> Bold move, Cotton. Let's see how he gets out of this one. See how it goes. Like, yeah, I know. <laughs> so every every single person in that man's life liked him enough not to turn him in or even give any information whatsoever, which leads me to think that it might not be an accurate description. Just saying. True. It is dark. He was. So you got headlights, Matt, coming in your eyes as he's passing, uh, as they pass each other on the highway. And then depending on how fast you're going, your adrenaline's running, we all know that you know eyewitnesses can make some horrible, horrible um, acknowledgments, I guess, that they they wholeheartedly believe is true. And when come to find out, it's just the adrenaline messing everything up. Anyway, Rob gives police Angie's description of the man. A composite sketch of the man was released from her description and Rob's retelling. But here's the odd part. They did not include the beard in which she said the man had. And nobody knows why. I could not find anything that would lead you to a reason why a composite sketch was not made with a beard and without the beard. But anyway, police start their search immediately, and the first place they go is to where Rob's car broke down. Now, there's no tire tracks, skid marks, none of that stuff that would show them which way the guy went. Also, keep in mind, they're about 30 minutes behind the old boy. So, that guy's gone. So, I mean, I mean, even if he, even if it was now and Rob had a cell phone, the guy's still got a good 5, 10 minute jump before police are even there. So, anyway... 
he could have been, seriously been anywhere within 30 minutes. Police also went and found Angie's car in the parking lot of the Superborn, and her purse was still inside, but there was nothing else that could indicate to them what may have happened and who this guy was. So police call Angie's family as soon as Rob told them what had happened. Her father, Chris, immediately starts coming into town from Kansas City, and he would wind up staying in Clinton for several weeks trying to help out any way he could. Now, early in the investigation, police focus in on Rob because we always start small and work our way out. Because, and, and another reason they look at Rob is this is a very fanciful, wild-ass tale. I mean, why not take a look at him? Now, Clinton, being the small town that it is, the old rumor mill fires up, and the first one is that Rob had Angie killed because she was pregnant, and he did not want the baby slash did not want the responsibility of having a baby. Everybody that knew Rob and Angie and their families quickly squashed that rumor, but it still kind of persisted in the underbelly of Clinton. Well, I mean, did they did the police prove that the car broke down? Yes, they. That's right. how they figured out the transmission. Rob didn't know what happened. He just said the car stopped. So when police get there and they have it towed in, that's when they feel or they figure out that it actually was the transmission that stopped it. There you go. So at least you know that's the other thing. Anyway, uh, during the investigation, there was another name that kept getting brought up, and that was the name Bill Barker. Bill was a 17-year-old high school student and just so happened to be Angie's ex-boyfriend. So this rumor was that Angie was pregnant not with Rob's baby, but with Bill Barker's baby. Now, some piece of shit in the town of Clinton had nothing better to do than to shit on Angie and Rob's life with this wild story. But despite this wild claim... The rumor grows legs and spirals out of control so badly that Bill and Rob are then said to be in cahoots together. And then it gets even worse that they work this whole thing out together. And so police can't ignore it anymore, and they bring Bill and Rob in. Now, Bill is questioned for three hours. And police outright ask him, why would you and Rob do something like this? And he's like, dude, I don't know what the hell you're talking about. Rob is questioned for over five hours. And they both are given polygraph tests, which authorities eventually tell each man that they passed. But not before some small town police fuckery breaks out and they try to get a false confession out of both of them. Eventually, Rob and Bill are both cleared as suspects despite the police claiming that they were never suspects, they were just primary witnesses. Yeah, I told you, fuckery is afoot in Clinton. You don't, if it's a primary witness, you don't keep them separated, one for three hours, one for five hours, interviewing, grilling the shit out of them. Those were suspects, folks. Now, the community of Clinton rallies around Angie's family and helps out any way they can, and the most thing that is done it to begin with is putting out missing person posters of Angie and then over 250 volunteers including family friends and the police conduct an air and ground search throughout Clinton and the surrounding areas they would bring um, in search dogs helicopters 
you know, search and rescue. They checked water wells, creek beds, abandoned barns, roads, woods, fields, abandoned buildings. No stone was left unturned, but they could not find any trace of Angie. The FBI became involved in the case very early due to it being an abduction case. And 11 days after Angie goes missing, the Clinton Police Department and the FBI reach out to the Missouri Rural Crime Squad to get this case even more awareness and even more assistance. The Missouri Rural Crime Squad responds by sending out 25 officers from all different counties of Missouri to assist in the case. Now, during this time, two witnesses came forward to say that they had seen the same truck that Rob described. So the Missouri Highway Patrol gets involved, and they decide to search their databases for the truck, and their computer spits out that there were over 1,600 green F-150s between 1960s model and a 1970s model. But how many of them got a fish painted on them? Probably like 12, 13 tops. I'd say one. (laughs) (laughs) It's Missouri. Missouri. <laughs> Come on, man. There's, there's, okay, there's four. There's going to be more than one. However, <laughs> still, none of those people, if there was more than one, those people that knew that truck never came forward. Right, right. Now, I will give credit where credit is due. The Missouri Highway Patrol runs down all 1,600 trucks, but unfortunately, they don't get a single lead or find one with a fish on the back. Now, police then started looking into the possibility that Angie's disappearance was related to two other similar disappearances that had happened in the months prior to her going missing. Both of these cases had occurred within an 80-mile radius of Clinton. The first case took place in Max Creek, which is 70 miles from Clinton, and it took place just three months before Angie disappeared. On January 19, 1991, 42-year-old Trudy Derby had been working the night shift at a convenience store. At around 10 p.m., she noticed there were three men lingering out in the parking lot. This freaked Trudy out, and she calls her son, Waylon, to come and walk her from the store to her car. Waylon's about 10 minutes away, and so by the time he gets there, he can't find his mom or these three mystery men. What he does find is the front door to the convenience store is open, the lights are on, and the cash register is open. Two days later, on January 21st, Trudy's naked body would be discovered 15 miles from the convenience store in the Nianangua River, and she had been... You're going to get that right and then mess up river. Yeah, I know. (laughs) Nianangua River. river. (laughs) I was concentrating hard, brother. Wow, that is the best one ever. <laughs> she had been sexually assaulted and shot twice in the head with a thirty-eight caliber pistol. Now, just one oh, month—that's bad timing on my part. It is, I'm but sorry. I mean, I, I did, I did screw that up. I did screw that up. But anyway, I sincerely apologize to uh, the family of that victim. My my, my apologies. That was, yeah, that was that him was making fun of me time. not being able to say the word river, not over the severity of what I was trying to read. Yeah, I feel, I feel pretty bad right now, <laughs> to be honest with you. Oh, just one uh, month I later. Should, I should have just. No, 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 no. I, I, I deserve that one. Everybody get it, man. Everybody well, get it. I should just waited. So just one. I'm sitting here laughing, and you're like shot in the head twice, and I was like, "Golly!" (laughs) 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 
<laughs> oh, Lord. All right, so just one month later, on April 27, 1991, which was a Wednesday, Cheryl Ann Kinney disappears from a convenience store in Nevada, Missouri. It's also 70 miles away from Clinton. Now, Cheryl was a 30-year-old mother of two and was working at the Quality Convenience Store located on U.S. Route 71. Usually, this store stayed open until midnight, but on this night, Cheryl decided to close up shop around 10 p.m. because, A, it had been a slow night, and, B, she wanted to get home to her husband and her kids. When she decided to close the store, there was a male customer in the store with her and the janitor. So Cheryl goes to the janitor and tells him, says, look, just going home, as soon as I get this customer checked out, I'm leaving. So the janitor states that when he went to his car, the only other cars in the parking lot was Cheryl's. So he had assumed that after he left, Cheryl counted the money in the till, went to the store, went and stored the money in the back room, and she would have then set the store's alarm as she walked out to her car. Now, we do know that she did, in fact, set the alarm at the store at 10.17 p.m. from records from the alarm system. Now, it is theorized that she then headed to her car, but unfortunately, Cheryl never would make it home. Her car was found abandoned in the parking lot, and she has never been seen again. A few days later, the dis or I'm sorry, a few days after the disappearance, two witnesses said they had heard a scream in the area between 10.17 p.m. and 10.30 p.m. It's not known exactly where the scream came from. If they investigated, I'm sure they did. But we also don't know exactly what happened to Cheryl. In her case, remains unsolved to this day as well. Now, three years later in 1994, Trudy's case would be solved. 15-year-old Jesse Rush and his half-brother Marvin Chaney were arrested for the murder. Jesse started going around bragging to several of his friends about how they robbed and murdered Trudy and how he was on cloud nine at how he had gotten away with it. Well, his friends wasn't as big a piece of shit as the people that know the truck owner. And so they go to authorities and they are like, hey, this old boy named Jesse Rush is saying that he robbed and murdered this lady. So they bring him in and he squeals like a pig and confesses to the whole thing. He said it was him, his half-brother, and a third guy that I could not find the identity to. And they had all three cased the store before the murder and they had this whole thing planned out, premeditated. So they entered the store with a handgun, held Trudy at gunpoint, forced her to empty the register, which they get $220 from, and then the three men forced Trudy into their car. Trudy's not giving up without a fight, so she starts defending herself, which pissed all the men off and set them into a rage. So they begin to physically abuse her on the way out there, and they drive to an abandoned farm where they also continue to physically abuse her, but also sexually abuse her, and then they shoot her in the head with a thirty-eight caliber pistol. After they murdered her, they put her body in the trunk, and they drive her to the Nianangua River to dispose of her body. To their surprise, when they open the trunk, Trudy's still alive. So they shoot her once more in the head and then dump her naked body into the river. In 1996, both Jesse and Marvin were convicted for the murder and sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole. 
Trudy's father, Wilbur, actually passed away a couple of years before the sentencing of these two pieces of shit, but he did live long enough to see all three men arrested for his daughter's murder. Marvin Cheney would pass away in prison in 2017 at the age of 56 from natural causes. In a fucked up turn of events, Jesse Rush was actually released on parole in 2022 because of a Supreme Court ruling that basically said life without parole sentences for children 17 years or younger are unconstitutional. I understand that, but you've got a confession. And then I'm pretty sure all of the evidence matches up, but I digress. Now, in true piece-of-shit fashion, Jesse couldn't stay on the straight and narrow and was actually arrested again pretty soon after he got out in 2022. He's then arrested again in October of 2023 for having a metric shit ton of firearms in his possession, you know, something a convicted felon cannot have. Now, neither he nor Marvin ever admitted to having any involvement in Angie's disappearance, but Jesse did allude to being involved in other rapes and murders in the area. When he was in jail awaiting his trial, he befriends another inmate named Edward Thomas. Jesse's not the brightest bulb in the basket, and he thinks that Edward is a lawyer and that Edward can help lessen his charges. So Jesse begins to write Edward 13 letters in which I guess he thinks he's pleading his case, but he is actually incriminating himself even further. And these letters were really, really detailed about his crimes, and they are really, really disgusting. You can find some of them out there, but damn it. Um, in the letters, he never mentions Angie Hammond by name, and despite a solid effort by the authorities, they could never find any solid evidence to link him or Marvin to Angie's disappearance. In October of 1991, a new lead emerged from a Canadian man. Now, he claimed that he was visiting some family in Ulrich, Missouri, which is located about 15 miles from Clinton. This man claims that he had never heard of Angie's case before this point, but when he was in Ulrich, he saw all the missing person posters of Angie. He immediately contacted the police and tells them he's seen this woman. He would state that just one month prior to, to him being in Ulrich, so that would be September of 1991, he had seen her getting into a green pickup truck, which had a white top and the mural in question on the back window outside of a drugstore. But the drugstore just happens to be in Manitoba, Canada. What? Yeah. So the Clinton Police Department immediately contacts the Canadian Royal Mounted Police, tells them about this new lead, and the RMCP immediately contacts all the hospitals and the nurseries in the area with a photo of Angie asking if any of them had seen her. No one had seen Angie, and quickly this lead is dismissed. And the reason it was dismissed is basically they feel like after some further investigation that old boy made a mistaken identity kind of revelation. Now, in January of 1992, Angie's case was featured on Unsolved Mysteries, and this would generate 600 calls with possible leads within just a week of the episode airing. 
Police did their due diligence and followed up on all 600 calls, but all of them turned out to be dead ends. In April of 1993, police used cadaver dogs to search a farm in Lafayette County, Missouri. Now, law enforcement had actually questioned the man who used to live on the property previously, and he had become a newer person of interest after investigators received a tip that he had owned a truck similar to the one described in Angie's abduction. There was also another informant who told police that this same man had a green pickup truck and had buried it somewhere on the property. So detectives searched the farm and the surrounding area, only finding some car parts. Unfortunately, these car parts did not match a green F-150. Authorities were ready to dismiss this man once again as a suspect, which is, you know, what should have happened, but they are so desperate, and I'm not saying desperate as in eye-rolling desperate, but they're truly trying to save this or solve this case. And so about the time they're trying to rule him out again, they get a call from a psychic in, the, in April of 1993 that says not only is this guy involved, but Angie's buried on the property. So that's where the cadaver dogs come in. So they go back out there. There's 24 detectives, five cadaver dogs, and they spend hours searching this 60-acre property. But again, they find nothing. No trace of Angie, no trace of the truck, nothing. And they're pretty good at their job. So if there was something to find, I'm pretty sure the dogs would have found something. You would think so. Some sort of just anything. So if they found nothing, then I believe there was nothing there. I concur. 18 years after Angie's abduction in 2009, Clinton police released some new information to the media and said that they had some DNA evidence from the original crime scene. They had collected DNA evidence from the phone booth and were hoping this might lead to a possible suspect. It has never been released if anything came from this press release, though. In 2021, as the 30th anniversary of Angie's disappearance approached, Clinton police did another press conference saying they believed that her case may have been a case of mistaken identity. They said that they had a confidential informant who had aided police in a sting which had targeted a large narcotics ring. Now, this is at the time Angie goes missing. After the sting, the CI receives a letter in the mail at his home in Clinton. The letter is postmarked the 4th of April of 1991. And it's straight out of, like, Kiss the Girls. Like, it's made out of newspaper clippings with different letters, and it reads, quote, We know who you are. People like you deserve what you get. We know where you're... Wait, 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 wait. You're going to have to reread it, but know who you are... It gives the informant number on the letter. Oh, that's right. Yeah, I'd left that out. It says, hello, number, blah, blah, because it's redacted. And it's, uh, we, yeah, now you go ahead. We you know where, it. we you know re-read, where. <laughs> you reread it, man. Let, <laughs> <laughs> we know where your foxy daughter is at. She will see soon, end quotes. Now, detectives believe that Angie might have been mistaken for this CI's daughter, and whoever the CI had pissed off decided to abduct her to get back at him. Now, in a strange twist, apparently, after police released this information in the press conference, an anonymous person calls and gives the names of two people who might have been involved in Angie's abduction. But, since it's anonymous, they can't get back in touch with him. So, police... Go to the public and plead for the anonymous caller to contact them again. 
so that they could get some more information. But as far as the public knows, this guy never calls back. Or if he did, the police ain't saying shit. Now, Angie's disappearance still remains unsolved to this day. But shortly after she disappeared, Rob suffered from severe depression and blamed himself for Angie's disappearance. He felt like he let Angie's abductor get away, even though there was nothing else he physically could have done. Eventually, in June of 1991, he would travel to Fort Eudis in Virginia and enlist in the National Guard. Now, the same year that Angie disappeared, her mother, Marcia, would win a vacation trip through her work to Florida. She did not want to take the trip and stated that she felt guilty and also felt like it would be wrong to go on a vacation while her daughter was still missing. Now, her friends and family, along with her co-workers, eventually managed to convince Marcia to take the vacation and just take some time to decompress and get away from everything. Marcia struggled to function and live a normal life after Angie disappeared. And she would tell the media that she knows Angie is most likely dead at this point, but she just wanted her body so she could get some degree of closure. She also wants to give her daughter a proper burial. Marshall said, Marshall, Marcia said, as hard as it is to know that she is gone and as hard as it would be to know that she had been murdered and know what had happened to her, the uncertainty is so much worse. Angie's father, Chris, eventually returned to Kansas City but he would travel back to Clinton several more times and help out and try to get any help in Angie's case. The one thing this case is not short on is a lot of speculation and a lot of theories. Now, you have people who believe that this was a case of mistaken identity with the CI. Others believe that Rob still, to this day, had something to do with it. Others believe that it was an opportunistic crime, like somebody's just driving along, looks up and sees this attractive lady using a payphone in an abandoned parking lot and says, hey, why not? Other people believe that this could be the work of serial killer Kenneth McDuff. Now, his criminal history started back when he was 18, and he was convicted of 12 counts of burglary and one attempted burglary. In 1966, while he's out on parole, he and an accomplice, Roy Dell Green, abducts three teenagers. 15-year-old Mark Dunham, Mark's cousin, 17-year-old Robert Brand, and his girlfriend, 16-year-old Edna Louise Sullivan. McDuff and Green shot both the boys and then raped and murdered Edna with a broomstick, and that's as far as I'm going to go with that. You're more than welcome to look that up if you are so inclined. A few days after this, Roy felt guilty, goes into the police station, and confessed to everything. And he served 11 years for the crimes, and Kenneth was given three death sentences. Fast forward to 1989, McDuff finds a lawyer who convinces the parole board that it was Roy who was the aggressor, so the board lets McDuff out on parole. Just two years later, McDuff tortures and murders a woman named Brenda Thompson in Waco, Texas. He is arrested again on May the 4th, 1992 in Kansas City, Missouri. Now, McDuff would be put to death on November 17th, 1998. You may be asking yourself, what does this old boy have to do with Angie's case? Well, people in Clinton believe that since McDuff was caught in Missouri, it's possible that before he was caught, he was responsible for Angie's abduction. However, before his death in 1998, he actually confessed to a bunch of other murders in order to try and postpone his date with the devil. 
He was questioned extensively about Angie's abduction, but he never admitted to having anything to do with her disappearance. And I don't really believe personally that he had anything to do with it because he's grasping at straws at this point. He's trying to confess to things so that they will postpone his ride, the lightning ticket. Yeah. Which is, I mean, it's not a bad, it's not a bad plan because they have to check out the validity validity of your confession. And if you're not around, (laughs) right, they can't do it. And if I feel like if he did have something to do with it, a, he would have confessed, but also B, they would have had to investigate it. Now, another suspected serial killer that has been rumored in this case as a suspect is Larry Hall. Now, he was, or I'm sorry, he had killed women who were very similar to Angie in age, build, and hair color. His hunting grounds were also the area of Midwest Missouri in the early 90s. People also think that he looks kind of like the composite sketch that was released in this case, and he was rumored to use a similar M.O. to what the person in Angie's case pulled while she was on the phone to Rob. In a non-related part about Larry Hall, I have a mugshot of his on my monitor as I was taking or finishing my notes, and my wife thinks that it's you. You look like Larry Hall. Yeah, she just she's like, is that? Yeah, she's like, is that coach? And I'm like, no, that's a serial killer. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> okay hold on i gotta look this up uh hold on i'll share my screen so that you can see it hold on let me see oh god yeah <laughs> it kind of does it kind of does i mean <laughs> that hair in the front like the bangs like the greasy bangs i don't know man that I, you should look at that those mutton chops. <laughs> Wait a minute. Wait a minute. I just got an unconfirmed text message that he's exaggerating. <laughs> <laughs> no, he's not exaggerating. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know. I don't know who that's from. I don't have the number saved. <laughs> uh. <laughs> must have got a new number. Must have. <laughs> Maybe a burner. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. He does. Uh, that's I like, like I damn near died. Never the chin and keep yeah, the I know you wouldn't. I knew you wouldn't, man. I knew that's man. what threw me off there. I was like, no, man, he wouldn't just show that chin. No, there's no way. <laughs> that's, that's the reason behind the beard. Yeah. That's why want, everybody grows one. I gotta cut I gotta cover up the two chins. <laughs> <laughs> oh Dang, my god. That's- I appreciate her saying that, though. I mean... (laughs) She's always thinking of you, buddy. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) All right. So, now, Larry Hall claims that he had buried five bodies in southern Missouri in the Mark Twain National Forest. He said three of those bodies were from Springfield and two were from small towns that he just couldn't remember the names of. Now, this is where people believe that Angie could be one of the two bodies that he buried from the small towns with the other one being Cheryl, possibly. Now, Larry Hall has also been linked to the case of the Springfield Three for obvious reasons, but the one thing that gives people pause on him is that he used a van in his crimes, not a truck. Who knows? The van could have been in the shop at the time, and he could have just either stole this truck or this was his personal truck. Weirder shit has happened. 
Now, unfortunately, Angie's case is still unsolved, and with no new leads, there hasn't been a lot of movement in the case. The truck, I feel like, was the key, and it has probably been scrapped by now. The composite sketch would be the only hope that we have of solving this case, and I would love for them to go back and release another composite sketch with the beard and see if that brought up new leads. Other than that, a deathbed confession is the only thing we can hope for. I just, man, like you said, her seeing that car just stop had to be gut-wrenching. But on Rob's end, man, hauling ass, thinking maybe I can get there you know, before they get too far away. And then as he's passing a truck, he hears her yell his name, and then he's chasing after it, and the car goes dead. Man, I just can't imagine. That's awful. Yeah. It's completely awful. For both, I mean, for it's just it just adds a a whole new layer of just horribleness. It is, man. It's it's just a gut wrenching case in all in all aspects. They they both were, you know, under the age of twenty one, had the rest of their life to look forward to. She was four months pregnant. Um, yeah, seemed like great kids coming from a good all American family, and then just snatched away, man. Yeah, unfortunately, I mean, I don't think that she was around much longer after she was taken. But in some ways, and this sounds horrible, but in some ways it might be better. Yeah, she wasn't around, you know, who knows what they would have done or it's just it's just awful. Yes, it is. And and I know that people we get a lot of comments about how we try to be, and we really do since we fucked up early, we try to be very uh-huh. vigilant about how we interject our humor in this in our cases. Um, but please understand, when we make comments and we go off on these little tangents, we've got to do something, y'all. There's only yeah. so much murder and death and rape that I can look at before I just want to go shoot everyone in humanity. Yeah, it's it's hard to it's hard to defend unless you really listen. But like, we're not we find none of this funny. We just try to be funny in order to make it a little less depressing to listen to. And plus, I mean, we like to bust each other's balls all the time. That's right. So that right, that right, that right. Speaking of busting <laughs> balls, I don't think that I have checked the old Patreon to see if we've gotten any new followers. Well, dang, man. I know, I'm I'm slacking. We are getting, like you said, we are getting some traction on our Dale Julin. And if that's another thing. Um, Ashling, I fucked that up. Ashling in uh, Ireland said that they couldn't get Dale's book where they're at, but they're, they could travel to an Amazon Dropbox, it sounds like, north of where they're from. I do know that Cody from Down Under was able to order a copy of Dale's book. So that book is going out. If you are interested in reading Dale's book, you can probably knock it out in an afternoon if you're a, if you're a avid reader. Uh, I yeah. suggest that you do read it, and then I suggest you put it down when after he talks about going and moving to Savannah. Give yourself a break and then go back because the last part of that book is a total mindfuck when it comes to how deep he went into post Saki. But again, you can find that book at Amazon. You can just type in Dale Julin. Um, 
and Zodiac, or you can look on our socials and there is an actual uh, link on our socials to it. You can also see where I misspelled available and no one picked it up except my lovely wife who thinks coach is a serial killer. Um, (laughs) She can't can't prove that. (laughs) That is pure. I'm just just like, I'm just, you know, like this pure speculation. (laughs) Oh man, that is hilarious. Like, I mean, that's, that's ridiculous to think. I mean, who would even, like, jump to that conclusion? I threw away my damn list, but I'm going to go ahead and shout them out again. Um, this is our January patrons, and you may be getting two, but if you are, hey, you deserve it. We've got Jennifer Evans, who come in at the $3 sticker tier January 3rd, and Miss Andrea Rivers also coming in at the $3 sticker tier. So, ladies and gents, we appreciate that's how much we appreciate. That's how much we appreciate them. Is we're going to shout them out multiple times. Yeah, we don't give a shit. We um, really appreciate everybody um, supporting us, supporting Dale in his book, um, also supporting Jennifer. Please, like I said, if if Billy Jean Phillips' case still resonates with you, and you are from out there near Madison County, give Catherine's Helen Gone podcast. A listen, it's the last two episodes, uh, Billy Jean Phillips, episode one and episode two. Um, our our man on the street out there, Mr. Chuck Ball, alerted us to it, uh, what was that, Thursday? I think so. Yeah, Thursday, and so I I listened to it, and uh, I have to agree, um, there's a lot of uh, crazy shit going on in that episode, so... I've given my recommendations. So, what you got there, Slappy? I'm going to recommend a just awful movie, but I love awful movies when they're like this one. No story, no anything, but just pure blood and guts for the sake of it. And it's Winnie the Pooh, Blood and Honey. Yeah, you were telling me like, about that. Yeah, Winnie the Pooh got in the public domain, and they decided they was just going to make a horror movie, and it's just just good. I don't know. It's so bad, it's good. Yeah, it's like horrible. There's really no story. It tells like a little thing at the beginning, but then after that, it's just, hey, we're just going to kill people. (laughs) The good news is... The good news is, on February 14th, part two comes out, and they've added Tigger. Yeah. Tigger's going to be in it. So check it out. It's on, uh, I believe it's on Peacock for free streaming. Well, not for free, but you get the idea. Yeah, we get it. We get it. Well, Coach, you got anything else for the lovely ladies and gents out there in podcast land? Oh, you know I don't. Uh, deuces. <laughs>